Welcome to the New Big Five podcast. I'm Graham Green. My guest today is the American photographer Thomas D. Mangelson, or Tom Mangelson. Tom, thanks very much for being on the New Big Five podcast. Oh, thank you very much for including me. Tom Mangelson has traveled the world capturing some of the most famous wildlife photos ever, his work appearing everywhere from National Geographic to Newsweek. As with many of the photographers we've talked with on the New Big Five podcast, his work really goes beyond pictures, communicating vital stories about the need to protect nature and wildlife. Tom, I I wanted to start by asking, um, I know you grew up in Nebraska in the States. Were you surrounded by nature and was it always clear to you that you would be spending your life in the great outdoors in in some way? Well, I grew up uh, in central Nebraska, basically the prairies in in, uh, near Grand Island, Nebraska, which is right south central the heart of America, heart of Nebraska, and out in west in the Sandhill country, which is uh, uh, full of a lot of bird life, deer, and um, all kinds of small mammals, uh, raccoons, skunks, possums, and and it's a great place to gr- grow up. I grew up hunting and fishing mostly, if uh, bird hunting, ducks and geese and pheasants and quail and that kind of thing. But I just got hooked on it, and um, I didn't have any idea I was going to become a wildlife photographer any near anything near this. Birds were one of your first loves, weren't they? There's a massive um, appeal in capturing them in flight, isn't there? Well, it was a real challenge in, in the early early days in the 70s when I started photographing, or late 60, 69, 70. I, everything was uh, manual focus, you know, manu- manual metering, manual everything, and it was a challenge to uh, uh, manually focus on a flying bird, so that was my, my uh, efforts. Uh, it was really rare to get a picture of a bird in flight, that was focused, so I, uh, that was my challenge. Time, times have changed. Sure have. <laughs> yeah. About the time I learned how to uh, really get it down, uh, Pat, uh, after 15 years, the autofocus came out, so I was really, uh, you know, oh, man, now they got autofocus. So, But anyway, it's great, great help for me now. Um, and, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, from the late 60s or early 70s, that's uh, 40 or 50 years of, of taking pictures. Are you still excited every time that you go out of the house with a camera on a new adventure? Yeah, I'm actually, uh, <laughs> I'm 74 years old, and it's not like I'm, uh, some people say, are you still out shooting? Well, I've been out shooting, uh, Graham, the last uh, five days every day to photograph otters just across the river from where I live. I live in Teton Park. I'm looking at the Teton Mountains right now, and there's mm-hmm. snow covered, and there's more snow coming, but right across the river, it's about, uh, you got to go around there about two miles, and there's this family of four otters, and I've been there every day photographing them along with the cow moose yesterday. Now I get excited now as, as ever, and I'm, Great. Um, is there anything that you've changed over the years in terms of keeping it fresh, or does the natural world really keep things fresh for you? Well, I think uh, I'm not a collector of animals, sort of like bird tickers, as you know, in England there. You don't, I don't need to see every species in the world, but I, I tend to go back to places that I know well, that I didn't think I could do better with an image, you know, to make a more focus on, so to speak, on just getting a, a really beautiful image of an animal in its habitat and what it's doing and how it lives and as opposed to just sort of collecting uh, species. Yeah. So I go back to places a lot rather than, uh, you know, making sure they hit every country in the world and that kind of thing. Obviously, great wildlife photography is about, you know, studying behavior. It's about patience and, and time. And I particularly wanted to ask, I know photos like Polar Dance and your very famous Catch of the Day, uh, which I think has been called the most famous wildlife photo in the world. Did they require a lot of time and patience? You know, Catch of the Day, I was there. Before I went there, I saw a lot of uh, 
still photographs of the bears at Brooks Falls, which is in Katmai Park in Alaska. And the, the bears catch salmon that are leaping the falls and things. And I've seen some, I had seen so many pictures, I was kind of almost not bored with it. But I thought, well, it's all, everything's been done before, nothing new. And then I was on a ship filming cranes, actually, for the BBC and, and the, the natural world. And I had a break in my schedule, so I went to Katmai. I thought, well, maybe maybe be nice. I saw this article in the airline magazine about bears at, at Brooks Falls, and I thought, well, maybe... Maybe I could just get a head, head and shoulder shot of a bear actually catching a fish, which it hadn't been done, or at least I'd never seen it before. And so I spent a week there um, just trying to capture that single image. And I think I shot 1,500 frames, which is in those days on film was quite a few frames. Uh, today on digital, not so many. But it, you know, it's a lot of luck in that sense. But I, I went there with the, with the pre-visualizing that image. And in fortunately, I got the light, and the, you know, a couple of days the fish didn't even run up the stream because it was the temperature, or the chemistry, or whatever, and the and the bears weren't there. And a couple of days it rained all day, and then one day it was uh, bright and sunny, and everything came together. And so a lot of that is serendipity. But I like to pre-visualize images, and the polar bear image, I I went there for 12 years photographing polar bears in Churchill, Hudson Bay, and in uh, northern Hudson Bay, and spent you know. Every every season in the subarctic, looking for that great uh, polar bear image that said it all, and and so after 12 years and I don't know 100,000 images, I suppose, I um, had a collection of, of images. That particular one was a polar dance. Was a blustery day, whiteout conditions, and I was with a, a good friend of mine, Fred Broomer, who was uh, a famous uh, poet, writer, photographer philosopher uh, from Canada and uh, he did a lot of work with polar bears and other Arctic wildlife and peoples of the Arctic and we were together just ourselves and we had a few friends with us and they said it was just too crappy out light was too bad and conditions too poor and so Fred and I just went out and took a chance that maybe we'd find something we found these two two bears that were play fighting in the snowstorm and and it was just magical because they, they'd get up and they'd dance dancing away. I mean, they look like they're dancing. That's their human take of it, which is they do that for fun, I'm sure, and, and to you know mm-hmm. make themselves more fit for catching seals later. But it was just one of those really magical days, and it became the cover of my book, Polar Dance. And Fred and I just looked at each other when it was all, all over, and we just said, you know, wow. And that's about it. Just, wow, that was special. Yeah. We went back to our friends. They said, do you see anything? Yeah, we saw a couple of bears. You know? <laughs> Are those the kind of moments that you live for and work yeah. for? Yeah, those are the moments that, that, you know, a lot of, you, you have a lot of moments like that, too, that you you didn't capture the photograph or capture what you had hoped for. And, and those probably stick in my mind even more so than than um, maybe one that you capture. But it's it's the, uh, I think it's just being out and, and observing and learning from your observations and being patient and taking the time and um, and then calculating all that for another time. I. I, I really sort of pride myself in being able to, the, with the otters, I could tell they were, where they were going up the river yesterday, and that I would just, rather than run up the river and sort of chase them, so to speak, uh, you can't catch up with the otters. They swim much faster and make a walk through two feet of snow anyway. And um, they were just having a great time catching uh, these brook trout. But I knew they would come back as the knew the stream ended that you know half a mile up the river and I waited an hour and a half and sure enough they came back and they played on the ice and caught more fish right in front of me so it's those kinds of things when you figure out an animal's behavior that I think it makes it 
makes a difference between people who can go out and, and capture images on a, on a fairly regular basis that are worthwhile, as opposed to just um, um, maybe getting a one-off because you have the, you know, there's so many people out there that have the same kind of equipment I have, or maybe even better equipment. So it's not just about the equipment, but it's about the experience and and the craft and and learning the behavior and understanding that that gives me a slight advantage maybe over some other people. It's also one of the great things about doing the job, isn't it? I mean, I love taking pictures, but some of those moments, even without a camera, it's it's great to watch those animals and really to to learn about them and see their behavior over the years, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I just love watching it. I don't always I don't always have to get the picture, but you learn a lot. It brings me a lot of joy just watching them and and uh, when I go to Africa, I'm planning on spending a lot of time with elephants on this yeah. particular trip. And there's probably nothing more, no animal more fun than, and amazing than elephants' behavior, their social behavior, their, their herd family behavior. Um, and it's unfortunate what, what's happening to so many of our species, like elephants and rhinos and lions and leopards and tigers. You can go down the list. That might start to answer the next question. So I'm just I'm just going to pause there for a moment. I want to to quickly explain to people listening that this podcast we're doing is part of the new Big Five project, where we're creating a new Big Five of wildlife. The old Big Five was based on the most difficult animals in Africa for hunters to shoot and kill, and the new Big Five that we're setting up is all about wildlife photography from all over the world. And the project is aiming to to highlight things like wildlife, conservation, climate change. So I want to ask people listening to go onto the New Big Five website, newbigfive.com, and to vote for their own personal choice for five animals they want to be included in the New Big Five. Tom, um, I'm asking every photographer I speak to to name their personal top five. Um, you touched on on elephants there, and we've also talked about bears a bit. So I wondered, first of all, what's your your number one favorite animal to spend time photographing and, and to see in photos? Yeah, I suppose uh, the number one animal would be a polar bear. Um, they're so beautiful, and they're the king of their, the, you know, the ice, and they live in a really <clears throat> challenging place, and maybe more challenged now, of course, because of climate change. And, yeah. and anyway, my my favorite animal overall would be a polar bear, and you know, they're, they're difficult to photograph. They're animated, you know, they do the play fighting. They're very. Uh, um, they could be very dangerous in a, in, in a situation if you were alone out on the ice kind of thing because they're total carnivores and like grizzly bears that eat berries and grasses and things. But uh, I think their shape is the way you, so many of the Inuits have carved polar bears and made all these beautiful carvings because just their silhouettes or their their shapes are in and of themselves beautiful and that they're the most powerful creature in the north. Uh, top of the food chain is uh, if it weren't for polar bears, it would change a lot of other things. But um, I think their, be their behavior, the way they treat their young, uh, they're very protective of the young, of course. And um, I think the, the history of, you know, the Inuits with polar bears and how important they, they were in their, in their legends and in their storytelling is, is compelling to me. And you mentioned climate change there. Have you have you sort of personally seen the effects of that over the years? Yes, I've seen, you know, especially in the polar bear land, the southern part of, of say, um, Hudson Bay in Manitoba, the ice, when I went up there a few years ago, we, we waited for a female polar bear to come out of her den in, in uh, March and April, and she came out and she had to walk 35 miles to the bay. They, they den in, 
inland where the creeks and willows and, and this deep snow forms. And so it's a 35 mile trek to the to Hudson Bay where they, then they go out on the ice. Now at that period of time, they've been, the, fem, the mother has been literally uh, not starving, but uh, using up all our fat reserves to, to, to nurse the uh, newborns. But um, so they have to travel these little tykes they're only about 10 pounds or maybe less, only a couple months old, have to walk 35 miles to get to Hudson Bay to get on the ice. And hopefully the mother can catch a seal and replenish her reserves and her fat, fat stock. So the, the cubs are dependent on that, as is the mother. But there was no ice for them to walk out on. That When we went back over to the bay, we realized that the ice was way out. So we just hoped that the... the the wind and uh, changed and would bring the ice to them, but normally that would be still frozen solid. So that is a very good example of climate change. Uh, bears can't get out on the ice. They can't eat anything because uh, all the seals are out on the ice and need, need a platform to catch the seals who are uh, lounging or, or um, giving birth out on the ice. So I think that is the most obvious one. Mm-hmm. I've also been to Antarctica and, and South Georgia photographing penguins a couple maybe over the last 15 years I, I realized that the glaciers that I saw 15 years ago are now uh, so much smaller than they were when I first went there I photographed these penguin colonies with these glaciers behind them and the glaciers now are minuscule comparatively you know they're massive regardless but places where we couldn't go 15 years ago are, is not just open water so it's a very uh it, it's it's the most challenging uh, thing to the to the environment that we humans are facing and animals, of course. Yeah. Everything is dependent on climate. Well, we we got polar bear there as your number one. I just uh, wanted to get your top five, if that's possible. If we can go for your top five animals. My other top five would be elephants. Uh, I suppose the rhinos, um, mm. tigers for sure, and. Uh, Polar bear that you mentioned. Yeah, polar. Yeah, polar bears, elephants, tigers, um, rhinos, and one and last one. One last one. There's so many. Um, I suppose African lions, actually. You know, I'm, yeah. so I'm not too too far off the 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 hunters ones, but maybe it's because I'm going to Africa in a week that I'm thinking more about. Well, let's say take it back. I would yeah take it back. Uh, I would do grizzly bears. I've spent uh, 12 years photographing one family of grizzly bears, and um, her name is uh, 399, which is a number that the Game and Fish tagged her with um, 13 years ago, and she's had 17 offspring and um, descendants, and she went back in the den about a month ago, and I've spent probably what amounts to almost two years of time over a 13-year period uh, photographing her. She lives in Teton Park, and she dens just outside the park in the wilderness area. And I saw her going up up the river, Pilgrim Creek, of this book called Grizzlies of Pilgrim Creek, which is her life story and her, her offspring's life story. And all the politics involved with protecting grizzly bears are yeah. highly endangered in the lower 48. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that if I can, because um, sure. I, you know, I know about this book. Um, mm-hmm. And if I'm honest, I, I didn't really know about this issue with the grizzlies. What has happened there? They're no longer protected or the protections are being taken away? Well, they put in an endangered species list in 1975. And then um, 
they were taken off twice since then. And once uh, uh, last year, they took them off and a, and a judge ruled uh, and they wanted to, they were basically there were a lot of people chomping at the, at the bit to to hunt hunt grizzlies for sport you know, kill them for fun. In other words, I grew up, I grew up a hunter, so I don't have any real problems with people who hunt for meat for their family table, but not for not grizzly bears or predators. No, nobody eats bears and, you know, leopards and lions and elephants and things. But so, uh, but they, there's a lot of trophy hunters who I think are just, just uh, lacking in, um, maybe their self-worth and feel like if they kill some big animal that could actually kill them, they would, it's, um, gives them some some pleasure but uh, the best i'd take guns i take it <laughs> no i wish i did but the that was just so incredibly uh sad to learn that fish and wildlife service in the uh, united states interior department the game and fish departments the nra it all goes back pretty much to those those groups the nra putting a lot of national rifle association putting in a lot of money and and lobbying to get the states and the federal governments to to hunt grizzly bears for sport now there's some 700 odd grizzly bears in this ecosystem in the lower 48 south of the canadian border maybe up to 1100 if you count washington and and a few in um, oregon and idaho etc but 1100 bears isn't that many considering we had 50,000 in the u.s uh, at the turn of the, you know uh, before white man showed up so the bears got down to about 130 individuals in Grand Teton and Yellowstone Park back in the uh, 60s, 70s, and they put them on the endangered species list because they thought they were going to go extinct at the rate that they were decreasing. So when they got up to about 500 or so, they figured, well, we can take some, you know, we can shoot a few and it won't, won't affect the population. Well, the federal judge ruled that they should put them back on the endangered species list because of the, you know, they hadn't done their homework enough. And then two years ago, uh, they were taken off again. And again, the federal judge ruled that because of climate change has affected their, their pine nut, one of their main food sources, um, white bark pine, which is a high elevation pine, which now is, is uh, dying because of the, because of the warmer weather doesn't kill a bug because it doesn't freeze. It has to freeze like minus 30, 35 for three or four weeks at a time to kill the beetle so that's affecting the grizzly bear population and the judge said you have not again done your homework you know they're losing one of their main food sources they're also losing some of the trout that are spawning because of the introduced trout but so there's a lot it's very complex but the judge ruled in favor of the bear and put it back on the dangerous species list and it was big news many many newspapers around the world uh, focused on this one bear 399 which now has become uh, she has her own Facebook page, <laughs> but she yeah. has not become the most famous bear uh, living probably and and probably forever. Yeah, she'll remain that way. But yeah, so she, she's a gentle bear. She never hurt anybody. She's she's had all these uh, cubs, and this year I saw her go in the den a couple of weeks ago or go towards it. It's high in the mountain country. I, I flew over. I know where it is, but it's a hell of a trek. It's a thirty. She went thirty miles in two days through two feet of snow to get to the den. To have, she, she kicked out her two offspring, they were two years old this year in June. She went back to the den, and I'm sure I saw her get bred several times this summer by these big bears, one called Brutus and one called Bruno. And I'm sure that she will probably, I'm sure she will have cubs again this year, which will, she had 24, 25 years old when she comes out in the spring. 
uh, it'll be another another miracle, and then it'd be really sad to see a bear like that or any bear—they're all the same—to get killed by uh, a hunter for fun, and that yeah. makes, me, makes me sick. Yeah, I mean, it seems a no-brainer to to want to protect uh, first of all an animal that just looks as magnificent as that, but also you know it's part of our natural world, and it's and it you know that there's a, there's a dwindling number of them. It, it seems an obvious thing to want to do. Sure, absolutely. Yeah it must have been quite satisfying to be part of that story and to have your pictures be influential is conservation and, and sort of telling those stories it's a vital part of your work and I wondered if, if that evolved over time or whether you were always interested in sort of the idea of what your photos might be able to do well I was involved with them my, my father was a, probably the first conservationist I knew he uh, growing up in the Platte River a lot of the water in the Platte was being diverted to irrigates uh, corn and so they're building these um, dams all along the Platte, and the river was actually going dry in the summertime. We could you could walk across the river, and we'd my brother and I would dig down and see how far the water was. It might be two feet down. And after irrigation was over, then the river would uh, flow again. But my dad fought these dam builders and the diversion of the water out of the Platte because it was really important for many species of, especially waterfowl and 600,000 cranes now and and hooping cranes and bald eagles and you name it and he would be i know he and i was like three four five six seven eight years old he would be going to court and they hired a hired a pilot to take pictures of the dried river and things like that so i think i had this and i realized how important the plant was i did a film about it my first film ever uh about the uh, uh the resource that the plant was to to the world really um, it's, it's a phenomenal site. It's as good as the uh, wildebeest migration, for that matter, to me. But I think I grew up with that kind of ethic that my dad wanted to save the, save the river and, and the water for the birds and things. Long before I ever took a picture. Then I started taking pictures uh, when I graduated from undergraduate school. And I'd study zoology and, and uh, I started a master's program in wildlife biology and picked up a camera and a meta. A friend of mine, a friend, uh, Paul Johnsgaard, who's now written uh, almost 90 books. He's 88 years old, and he's on his 94th book or something. And I was with him last week in New Mexico photographing cranes, which we, we had done 50 years ago as his graduate student. And he's considered the world's waterfowl um, expert, along with he is obviously the most, well, maybe not obviously, but 90 books on, on mostly birds, all, all, all birds of the world. Uh, he's the most published uh, naturalist ornithologist that ever lived. But so I learned a lot from him about a animal behavior and about bird behavior, of course, and, and about um, all the different species of birds. So I've been lucky to meet along the way and be influenced by people like mm. Paul Johnsgaard and Marty Marty Muir. He lives across this river sure. from your kid. But so I've been yeah. lucky. Um, I also wondered, kind of on related to that, that do you think it's important that photography also doesn't damage the natural world? I think ethics is becoming a bigger issue now that people don't go trampling over protected land or they don't and, you know, they don't put animals in harm's way by going to photograph them. Have you got any advice on that front of sort of ethically photographing wildlife? I helped start the International League for Conservation Photography some 15 years ago or so. And I was frustrated with another organization, which I won't mention, that, that I'd also been involved with, with starting that was more interested in getting the picture than, say, um, protecting the resource and protecting the animal from harm. 
and they were going to they were started promoting game farms which are places where you go and photograph animals that are kept in cages and they're put out in what looks like a natural habitat in maybe Montana, one of the main places, several main places are in Montana. And, and um, I was so frustrated with this idea of these slave animals being used as quote models for photographers and photography groups that I quit that organization. I, and I was very outspoken and I finally couldn't take it anymore. And I quit and started, help start the International League of Conservation Photographers, which forbade forbade the use of captive animals for photography so that that's kind of the worst of the worst when you talk about ethics and photography in my mind and then you know i've always been, felt like you know why would you want to take a picture of something you you know you you disturbed abnormally you know more than you know obviously hikers and people in cars or anything you know might move an animal and and that's just the way things are it's not a big deal normally but if you're really pushing an animal say especially a breeding animal or nesting bird or whatever it might be uh and you affect its its uh, um, well-being then how could you look at that picture later and say well that bird might have died and you know isn't it a great picture though so to me it sounds seems uh, pretty pretty uh, uh sad but you're a fan of kind of capturing the natural world as it is you're, you're i'm guessing you're against baiting and maybe you you don't you don't like this idea of of sort of uh controlling the situation or changing the situation no 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 i mean if you if you say like here where i live there's a, lo a lot of road kills and a lot of hunter kills you hunt elk and teton park is the only park in in america that they actually hunt animals and it's it's an excuse because they think they want to reduce the the herd of elk that are feeding in the national uh, elk refuge just north of town. And I mean, it's, it's pathetic. Uh, the guys just drive around and shoot elk and sometimes they can retrieve them. Sometimes they run off and die. But you know, those dead animals that are around, whether it be hit by cars or left by hunters and, you know, sometimes there'll be wolves on them or coyotes on them or ravens or eagles or something. And, you know, it's perfectly fine to show that, show that. And it's, it's more of a story and uh, but no I wouldn't drag an elk in my backyard and <laughs> try to photograph something I was keen to ask a little bit about some of the the highlights or some of your favorites um would I be right in thinking that this area of of, of America around Yellowstone is is one of your favorite locations to to photograph wildlife oh yeah no it's it's why I moved here I, I, I say grew up in Bull, uh, in, in Nebraska until I was about tw oh, 22 or so or three and then I moved to Boulder towards the mountains. I always wanted to live in the mountains and I only visited quote the Rocky Mountains a couple of times before that. I just dreamt of moving to the mountains and I moved to Boulder, got a job in filmmaking sort of serendipitously and became a cameraman. I did a few films, um, uh, one, one called Flight of the Hooping Crane for Geographic and these other crane films for BBC and stuff. And so I lear learned how to be a, a filmmaker, which was really exciting because you could tell a story, you know, much longer story with film than you can with a single image. But then I met a man who was doing limited edition prints of his his paintings, his oil paintings. And there's one above my head right now of Hooping Cranes Nesting in, in Canada. And he convinced me, became, became a mentor of mine. Owen Grammy is his name, and he's a very famous old master American painter. And he convinced me that he should do, that, that he was doing limited edition prints and I should do the same with my photographs. So I started going back towards the still image, capturing kind of the moment in a still image that I was able to tell a, a story basically with a still image. Um, 
similar to maybe a film, quite different, but um, that became my challenge. Mm. And and so I kept moving in the direction of still photography and, and more towards the mountains. So I ended up moving, in, moving to Jackson Hole and in Yellowstone area because there's so much more wildlife here than it was in Colorado. And that's where I've the, probably uh, been here now for 40 years and probably uh, probably die here, I suppose. But it's, yeah, it's it's a uh, hopefully not too soon. No, hopefully not. I hope I got a few years left. But uh, no, I had deer walking walking across my yard last night, and uh, you know, got birds coming to the bird feeder, and it's uh, I'm looking right now at the Tetons in the snow, and it's pretty hard to beat. If I couldn't live in this place, um, I don't know where I'd go. But I'm yeah. very very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, Yellowstone's known, it's iconic for its wildlife, as are places, you know, like you mentioned, like Masai Mara or Serengeti or Galapagos. I wondered, could you recommend to people um, somewhere really off the beaten track, maybe a little known wildlife area in a country not famous for wildlife? You must have you must have explored some really adventurous spots in your time. I'm not going to tell you, Graham. OK. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, the, the, you know, it's become which is great many ways ecotourism is 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 probably going to help save a, a lot of species and save a lot of, of wilderness which we all know because if you can't if they can't monetize especially the locals like inside kenya or, or, or africa in general or india or wherever china uh if the locals can't monetize it some way they're going to Grow, grow crops and destroy the landscape, which of course will make the animals disappear. But as far as there, there aren't many secret places left that you could, you know, I mean, even snow lepers now, there's places sure. that you can go to photograph snow lepers kind of on a, you know, they're all distant, they're not easy or anything like that. But yeah. I said that was the, uh, the holy grail would be a snow leopard. And I still want to do that. And I'd still like to shoot pandas and pandas in the wild in China and things. But there aren't many places that that haven't been discovered. Put it that way, it's kind of mind-boggling. Actually, we go sure. to a place and there was no one there um, ten years ago, and now it's filled with with bird watchers or photographers or nature, which is all fine and good, but it's it's not uh, quite the same experience. Sure. You mentioned snow leopards there. You've you've never photographed them. Is that one animal that you'd you'd really like to photograph? Yeah, it is. That's on my bucket list. Yeah. Um, and just just one last thing I wanted to ask really was, you know, we talk about all these iconic species. One of the things I like as, as a photographer is sometimes just finding an interesting lizard or a bird or something like that. So I wonder if you could talk about one animal from all your years that sort of stood out as, a, as an unsung hero, maybe. Well, there's probably a number of them that I'm trying to... I think we over... You know, we often, you know, what we've been talking about are all the mega animals like uh, lions and polar bears and and uh, I, I really get a lot of joy and thrill out of just finding a, a, a magpie and a, like a black and white crow uh, same same family but Fam there's famous as thieves no yeah exactly so I I um, I really enjoy watching I learn something all the time about uh, animals and I'm more interested in maybe not so much finding a little gem of something that nobody else has photographed uh, but like the magpies they I, they're nesting I can see the nest from my my window here now and just seeing them coming and going and the crows are always trying to chase them and that kind of thing 
yesterday I saw these otters. Le- learning new behaviors is probably more more interesting to me than maybe finding a gem of an animal. So, mm. uh, uh, but the the otters were actually building this, rebuilding this dam, a uh, beaver dam, which is which had been abandoned to keep their their pool of fish, these brook trout. Uh, keep the water high because on the other side of the dam there was just a stream and there were no brook trout in it to, to be caught say so I, I didn't realize that otters now maybe this is I don't know that much about otters and but I didn't realize they were actually acting like beavers and they were plugging up the holes in this dam which was kind of it was new to me I'd never seen it before so actually if I don't see something you know it's new to me that's always kind of uh, hmm, look at that they're they're stopping the water and going over the dam, plugging the hole, just like beavers do, but they're otters. And they're obviously doing it for a purpose, to keep that pond high and and uh, keep their fish in there. So that's, uh, there's always something special in the, in the wild that surprises me. And there's so many things that I need to learn and can learn and see and travel to. And my... Uh, my bucket runneth over, so to speak, with yeah. places to go that I probably will never uh, see because of my years, but I'll dream about them. I look forward to seeing the results of all that, Tom, wherever, you, wherever you're headed off to. Thanks very much for being on the New Big Five podcast. It's been really great talking with you. Great talking with you, Graham. Thank you. To everyone listening, please go on to the New Big Five website, newbigfive.com and vote for your choices to include in the new big five of wildlife photography on the website you can find many more podcasts as well as interviews with photographers and conservationists articles on climate change conservation and the world's wildlife photography tips photo galleries and plenty more please help us spread the word about the new big five project by sharing it on social media Hashtag New Big Five. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. If you'd like to get involved with the project, drop us a line. Contact details are on the website. Thanks for listening.